Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. John, the second chapter, the 13th to the 25th verses. The, the gospel begins that just before the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And this is something that John does frequently, that he, for messianic reasons, he places some of the, some of the major um, teaching events of Jesus' life at Passover in Jerusalem in order to, to emphasize the relationship between Passover and Messiah, to re the relationship between Jerusalem and the coming of the Messianic Kingdom. And in the temple, it says then, John says, in the temple he found people selling cattle and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting at their counters. And making a whip out of some cord, he drove them all out of the temple. Cattle and sheep as well scattered the money changers' coins, knocked their tables over, and said to the pigeon sellers, take all this out of here and stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. This kind of dramatic scene has all sorts of, of peculiar kind of twists and turns to it. It's not the event itself that is upsetting Jesus. It's not the providing of animals for sacrifice. Um, it's not the, uh, you know, the changing of the coins from idolatrous coins with pictures and sayings of Caesar on them into coins that were acceptable to be in the sacred area in the temple itself. Because all of those were really a service to pilgrims. You could not expect the pilgrims to be bringing their livestock with them from the far corners of Palestine and to bring them into the temple and somehow take care of them until the time of the sacrifice. And so it was easier then and more convenient for the, for the pilgrims if those animals were available to them once they got to Jerusalem. And then they could not spend Roman coins in the temple for the temple was a sacred space. And uh, as a sacred space, um, you could have no idolatrous images. You could have no images of any kind. And so the Roman coins, which bore the image of Caesar, had to be exchanged for coins that were acceptable within the temple. And then they could go and take them and purchase the sacrificial animals for them. So if this is all kind of a service and all kind of a necessary part of the celebration of Passover, what was Jesus doing and why was he doing it? We come to something that's a little bit more intangible and yet at the same time, we, we know it well. The temple was the dwelling of the Almighty. It was where God dwelt among his people. We have the visions of Isaiah where the, where the robes of, of the Lord filled the temple sanctuary and so forth. It's where the people come to encounter, to encounter the living God in their midst. They can encounter God in their personal lives and we've seen already they can encounter God in, in the desert by themselves. But when they encounter him as the people of Israel at Passover time, as those who are celebrating and remembering the coming out of bondage in Egypt, then it is the dwelling place, the actual dwelling place of the Lord on earth. And so it is incredibly a holy space. You know, we, we might want to think of ourselves 
we have, we've developed a very different attitude towards sacred space in the contemporary world. Certainly very recently, up to the middle of the 20th century, we treated our churches in exactly the same way, that it was the dwelling place of God among his people locally, and that there was silence in it and great reverence and constant acknowledgement of the presence of the Lord. It was not kind of a gathering space. It was not a meeting space. It was not a place, you know, to carry on the ordinariness of, uh, of our everyday business. It was, it was a place where God dwelt among us and we acknowledge his presence in awe and in wonder. We've come kind of to where I have a different attitude now, but that different attitude, we ought to challenge it somehow because here, this is exactly what the problem is. In the Holy of Holies, in the presence of the living God, it was kind of like a marketplace. It was kind of like people hawking their wares. It was kind of like a gathering space. It was where people chit-chatted and where people socialized and where they ran into relatives from the last time they came to Passover who were from other places. And so there were all sorts of reunions of families and reunions of friends and so forth. And it was all going on in the temple area. And Jesus wants to re-emphasize the presence of the living God. And so he does drive them out, not because what they're doing is essentially wrong, but because the way they're doing it is essentially wrong. And then on the other hand too, and we're, we're going to see this later on in the gospel, on the other hand too, he's drawing attention to the presence of the real temple, the presence, the real presence of the living God, who is present among them as Jesus of Nazareth. Then his disciples remember the words of scripture, zeal for your house will devour me. They're remembering a quote, a messianic quote from the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 14, actually verse 21, and so what they are doing now is they are recognizing in what Jesus does as a messianic sign, a messianic sign that is, that is foretold by the prophets and being foretold by the prophets is now manifest before them, the zeal for the house of the Lord. And then the Jews, however, intervene. And here, you know, we, we have to be careful here in, in this day and age where, where we're having all sorts of, of issues about anti-Semitism and kind of moving from the political, international, geopolitical world of the conflicts in the Middle East with the individual persons of Jewish descent. And, and there is, in, in many places, especially in our institutions of higher education, apparently, a tremendous uh, anti-Jewish uh, anti movement, anti-Jewish feeling. And so John's gospel becomes particularly problematic with this because when he refers to the leaders of the Jewish people, when he refers to the scribes, the Pharisees, and so forth, most of the other gospels say, well, the Pharisees or the scribes or the Herodians or, or, or the Sadducees or somebody. But John never does that. He just says the Jews. He does so not to include all of the Jewish people because John himself is one of them, as is Jesus. He's doing it to refer then to the leadership of the Jewish people, the ones who are invested in their position, their power, their wealth, their privilege, and are using the covenant to do that for personal gain. 
and he's not referring to the ordinary Jewish people, the ones to whom Jesus is ministering, the one to whom Jesus is showing affection and kindness, the ones to whom Jesus is healing and, and proclaiming the good news. So we have to put that in our mind when we read this in the modern age. There are those who suggest, well, we have to change that. Well, no, we shouldn't change what Jesus says. What Jesus says, he says. And on, on the other hand, too, I think it behooves us in this particular day and age to proffer a, uh, uh, an explanation of what John is doing here so that we don't misunderstand it and misinterpret it. And so the Jews then come and they intervene with Jesus now who has cleansed the temple area of the marketplace atmosphere. And they said to him, you know, by what right can, what sign can you show us to justify what you have done? Now, this is interesting, and this happens all the time, that as a matter of fact, Jesus has shown many signs, many signs, and, and certainly he is going to show many signs. But the leaders of the Jewish people, they're, they're unconvincing, and Jesus is aware of this. Jesus does not want to elicit faith purely on the basis of wonders and miracles and signs. He wants to elicit faith in the person that he is, and he wants to elicit faith in the living God who is present among the people, and not simply in the wonders. For if you place all of your trust simply in the wonders, you can wander off after a multiple of uh, healers and magicians and so forth. So it's not the absolute ultimate compelling reason for faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ is because of who he is and what he does it points to that when, it, when, when we allow it to stop only at what he does and we never follow that trajectory into the person, into the heart of the Lord, then we have squandered the signs. We have squandered the miracles. And this is exactly what Jesus is going to say to them. So they say, what sign can you show us? As though he hadn't already showed them signs. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And here, very clearly, Jesus is referring to himself. He is the temple. We do not need the great phenomenal structure, Jesus says. I am your temple, for I am the presence of the living God in your midst. It is I who contain the presence of Yahweh, the presence of the living God of Abba, the Father, and the Spirit. And the Jews intervened, and they said to him then, what sign can you show us to justify this? And he said, destroy the temple. And the Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? In a sense, of course, they're deliberately misunderstanding what he says. Because in John's Gospel especially, Jesus has no problem referring to the, referring to the fact that he is the Messiah and that he is the presence of the living God. The dramatic I am statements in John's Gospel, which identify him with the voice in the burning bush to Moses, makes that very clear to us. And Jesus is making it very clear to them that he's not really talking about the temple that they're looking at. He's talking about himself. And he's talking about what is to become of him. And he's talking about what they are going to do to him. And all of this in the aura of messianic fulfillment. The temple itself had been under construction for 46 years, and it was to continue to go under construction until shortly before 70 AD, when it is destroyed by the Romans. There is then a sense 
in the uh, in the apostles as the history unfolds that they recall what he said about the temple being destroyed and for some of them who lived long enough they see it destroyed before their very eyes but he was speaking of the sanctuary that was his body John tells us, and when Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that he had said to them. In other words, they then put together through, through the articulation of the prophets and, and also through the dramatic proclamation of Jesus that once he had ra been raised from the dead, they said to themselves, he said they would destroy it, and in three days it would rise again. And so he was talking about himself. He was talking about himself as the temple of the Lord. Then it goes on to say, during his stay in Jerusalem for the Passover, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he gave, but Jesus knew them all and did not trust himself to them. He never needed evidence about any man. He could tell what a man had in him. And so he find once again, here comes Jesus' skepticism about the faith and the devotion to him that comes only from his miracles, only from his signs, because he knows how fleeting that can be and how empty that can be. He heard it from the leaders of the Jews themselves, show us a sign, when he had already showed them many signs. But none of that was compelling or convincing to them because they took it as a wonder and not as a proclamation, not as a moment of revelation. And I think this is something, too, that we have to look at when we look at the uh, miracles in the gospel, the signs in the gospel, that they are not just, oh, isn't Jesus a nice person? They are moments of revelation where the truth of who Jesus is is exposed and revealed to the, to the witnesses and the recipients of his signs. There are those who are disposed to faith and they therefore use the signs as an avenue into deeper belief. And there are those who are just kind of mesmerized by the show of it all. And, uh, and therefore, it leads them nowhere into belief. They're just kind of happy about the revelation. They say, well, we're going to follow this man because um, look what he can do. Instead of we're going to follow this man because look who he has revealed himself to be. And I think that we have to be careful of that as well in our own faith that the signs that Jesus gives us in our lives and in our world are signs that should lead us to him personally and not simply to reflect upon his wonder and reflect upon his marvelous power. Here then is, is the gospel that we have and here is the structure of the gospel that we have. And then we turn and we ask ourselves then, how is this applicable to us. This is, a, this is an interesting narrative, and, and it's filled with, with moments of truth and moments of revelation. And it teaches us, and it instructs us, and it should deepen our faith and open our eyes to the reality of the world that we live in, and the world of the Lord around us, and within us, and among us. But there's other things that we could derive from this as well. And I think that one of them, and, and this is a, is a difficult one, and one particularly relevant for us today, when we look at the church, when, when humanity looks at the church, which is the living mystical presence of Jesus Christ in the midst of the world, and says to us, you have failed us, you have disappointed us, you have not been what we wanted you to be. Show us, you know, show us a sign. If we look back, on the story of the church, 
And we say to ourselves, have we not received those signs? Have we not seen them come to us, for instance, in the church's work for justice in the world? When the church overcame the ancient code of Hammurabi, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, and insisted on the inclusion of mercy and justice, which changed the whole direction of the Western world? Have we therefore not seen that as a great sign? Have we not seen the sign of the care of the poor in a very systematic and structural sort of way? Have we not seen the great saints always feeding the poor? Have we not seen, for instance, the, the monasteries of the Middle Ages, the great bishoprics of the Middle Ages being the source and an and and, and avenue for the alleviation of the suffering of the poor? Have we not seen, for instance, the first hospitals in the world? Have we not seen the first orphanages? Have we not seen the first educational institutions? Have we not seen what liberates the spirit and the soul of the human person in order that it might so soar, not only in the flesh, but also in the soul and the mind? Have we not seen the first openness to the education of women? Have we not seen women moved into positions of, of power and authority and, and intellectual leadership as we saw in the great abbesses of the Middle Ages, as we saw in the great convents of the Middle Ages until they were destroyed and women resubjected in the Protestant Reformation? Have we not seen all those things take place? Have we not seen, for instance, in our own country, for instance, a person, a figure like Mother Cabrini, traveling to the United States to take care of the Italian immigrants who were looked down upon and excluded from society and persecuted? Have we not seen the clergy come with them? Have we not seen the religious communities come with them to look after them, to take care of them? Read the life of Mother Cabrini. Have we not seen the signs? Does this justify the misbehavior of Christians in the modern world? It does not. But when it does say to us, when we place the whole presence of Jesus in the modern world in signs and in wonders, then we miss the point altogether. And we miss the point that what he has done in human history has been one of the most remarkable, has been the most remarkable story of human development and human progress and human understanding and human wonder in the whole history of humanity. Have we not seen, we have seen great cities, we have seen great civilizations, but we have all seen, seen those built on abject slavery. We have seen that built. We have seen, for instance, for in, in our own battle with slavery in the Western Hemisphere, we have seen Pope Urban VIII absolutely condemn it in 1639. We have seen the Catholic Emperor Charles V forbid it in the 16th century. And interestingly enough, in his Spanish Empire and the New World, when one of his advisors, when he did so, said to him, why do you do that? You know you don't have the means of enforcing it. He said, I might not have the means of enforcing it, but if I don't do it, I'll lose my immortal soul. Have we not seen these signs within the presence of the mystical body of Christ in the story of Christianity in the Middle East, in the West, 
in North Africa and in the far-flung missions of the world. Have we not seen that? And so when we stand today in judgment on the failures and in judgment on the weaknesses of the modern church, and we say to this church, give us a sign or we won't believe in you, we're just like the Jewish leaders here in the gospel. What sign can you show us to justify your existence? As though they had seen none, as though we had seen none. We have seen a lot, and so did they. And yet, the challenge that comes, well, we will turn away from you. We are disappointed in the church because it has not been it has not achieved human perfection. It has achieved divine perfection because the Lord dwells in it. He dwells in the sacrament. He dwells in the tabernacles of our temples. He dwells among us in our hearts and within us in the Eucharist. He dwells there. But humanity itself has a long way to go to achieve the perfection for which Jesus died and for which he poured out his life and his love for us. There is a drama in the salvation of humanity. And there is an understanding that Jesus, as God, never compels us to faith, never compels us to goodness. He invites, he encourages, he suffers, he gives of his love, his grace. He does all of that, but he does not force. And as long as he does not force us, we retain the freedom to reject him. And the world that we live in seems constantly to reject him, to constantly, even those oftentimes within the church, use it as the scribes and the Pharisees use it. They use it as a badge of privilege. They use it as a way to, of advancement. They use it as a way of, of wealth and money and so forth. It, the world doesn't change, but the Lord remains the same. And he speaks to us as he spoke to them, you know, don't take my father's house and turn it into a marketplace. Don't secularize the church. Don't defile the temple area, the presence of the living God. Maybe, maybe modes of behavior toward the presence of the Lord change culturally over the years, but don't defile the space. Don't do that. Don't take Christianity, don't take Catholicism as just simply another religious denomination with a sometimes a great and, and interesting social life. Don't, don't do that. Because it exists here in order to lead us into the depths of the presence and the person of Jesus, the presence and the person of the living God. We might want to check our respectfulness in the temples of the Lord. We might want to make sure that it isn't a place, it might be a place of camaraderie and it might be a place of greeting, but it's not a place of chit-chat. It's not a place just to drag the local coffee shop into the sanctuary. That's not what it is. And maybe we should become more aware, more cognizant of that, actually. When all of this is put together, what are we talking about? We're talking about the failure to recognize the presence of the fulfillment of prophecy the presence of the fulfillment of the messianic hope and the messianic promise, the failure to recognize the presence of the living temple of God among us, the failure to recognize that we have received multiple signs as far as the greatness of the presence of the Lord is concerned. And it is not, therefore, something that we create, nor do we stand in judgment on necessarily the foibles of our leaders. 
that be that as they may, coming from the hearts of sinful men, we pray instead for conversion. We pray instead not for a sign, not for a miracle sign, not for a bolt of lightning. We pray instead for the change of heart and the entrance of the living God into the interior temples of his people. This is what we do, and this is how we respond to this gospel. It's a wonderful gospel. It's a, it's a marvelous story, and it's a marvelous insight into ourselves, into our times, and into our spaces, into our culture, and into our world. For while the temples of the living God are among us, let us develop a deep, deep appreciation of that. Let us visit these temples and do honor to the presence of the living God within them. Let us be faithful to his invitation to celebrate with him his presence among us. And let us enthusiastically seek the forgiveness of our sins that we might as worthily as we can receive his presence within us and in our lives. So the temple moves from the tabernacle into the hearts and the souls of his people. This is how this gospel can offer us. And this is what this gospel encourages us to pray about, to reflect upon, and to live. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Yeah.